safe because all the buttons that popped are underneath my robe. Thank you, sweetheart. It was beautiful. Our scripture lesson is found in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, in his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. One of my very favorite films is Babe. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's about this delightful little pig on the Hoggett farm. And the pig kind of narrates the film. And in it, there are sheepdogs whose attitude toward the sheep is really quite bad. And well, so is the sheep toward the sheep dogs, and the dogs toward the cats, and the ducks toward the chickens, and well, you just name it. The consistent line throughout the film is everyone knew that sheep were stupid, and there was nothing in the world that could convince the dogs otherwise. 
Of course, the humorous irony of the film is that every species feels that way about the others. And we as the audience are given insight and intelligence into the knowledge that all of them have brightness in their own way, even down to the dyslexic duck who thinks he's a rooster. At the end, everyone's affection for the pig allows them to come together in understanding, to communicate and work together, and life on the Hoggett farm is transformed. Would that all difficult struggles and things could be worked out in 90 minutes, and we all find the happy ending. Our scripture lesson today would inform us otherwise. The fact that it starts with the word therefore would have us strap on our seatbelts and understand that what's coming is not going to be easy. There's this chasm between the Jews of the day as being the separately called out people of God. They were supposed to be different from everyone else. And here comes along a Jesus, a one Paul proclaims as Christ, inviting the difference between them and the Gentiles to go away. Well... It couldn't have been a more hostile environment because the twain weren't supposed to meet. The uncircumcised and the circumcised were called to a peace in Christ that was not only between them but also in God. And Jesus' life is paying the price to bring everyone to the table. It had to feel like fighting words. Now, true, there were things that could happen to make outsiders kind of compliant enough to be considered among the family. A minor yet painful surgery was required for the fellas. A whole lot of education around the religious laws were involved for everyone. Very strict adherence to the rules and the practices would be highly expected. But even if you managed to kind of fit in and look like the crowd, at best... The new Gentile folk were the second string. Paul comes in declaring, not anymore. There's not going to be any difference between us. Christ has created one humanity in himself. So there is no Jew plus Gentile equals Jewish bigger family. It is Jew plus Gentile equals Christian. Therefore... Paul says, there will no longer be comparisons. They're out of order. 
All hostility and judgment is forbidden. There's no longer an us versus them. There's only us in Christ. Spiritual pedigree no longer mattered. No difference, no differentiation. Words like insider and outsider, Jew and Gentile, had no meaning anymore in Christ. Not anymore. It's really hard for us in this day and age to imagine how astonishing this verse must have felt in its time. Think of any group today that we regard as other over against ourselves, our group, and our peers, and we might get a taste of it. Our world is divided among racial and ethnic, socioeconomic fronts. It's everywhere. So just imagine for a moment that the Ku Klux Klan made an overture to an African-American church to come and have lunch sometime. Imagine the skinheads and the neo-Nazis inviting the Jews over for brunch. To suggest that we should throw such a party among such opposites and enemies is not only laughable, but it's dangerous. And yet if we can feel the tension and feel the disconnect, we might come close to what Paul was experiencing in his community. Isn't peace, after all, best understood as folks staying and knowing their own place? Any child who's ever shared a room knows that the line between down the middle that separates mine from yours and don't touch mine and you can't wear that and leave me alone is what makes home survivable. Robert Frost even said good fences make good. But what we all know is if we don't make peace, not really making peace. All we've done is define the sides and choose our corners. This text dreams of a different day, one in which Christ has put all of this division to death, has stopped it on a cross, buried it, and the end of the struggle has come with resurrection and newness, the invitation. So what does peace look like? Ephesians would make it clear that peace is not a thing. Peace is a person. The peace to which all Christians are called is in Christ himself. One peace in his flesh has made both groups into one broken the walls, and ended the hostility. So, how do you do that? Well, first of all, we've got to realize it isn't a program. Peace is not a policy. It isn't something we debate, discuss, or construct. 
which is another way of saying we don't apply our understanding of peace to Christ. Rather, Christ defines what peace likes, looks like, and we live in to that reality. So peace isn't a truce. It isn't a ceasefire. It isn't a matter of the estranged learning how to live together. There's something more important than being Jew or Gentile. It's about being unified in Christ, defined by Christ, and not by us. Ed Marquardt tells this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. He talks about having gone to a county fair in which they had a painting contest and the piece that was being, pieces that were being judged were called peace. Only three of them made the cut and then folks were to vote on what one they liked best. One was a Wisconsin farm. Beautiful white fences, clean cows, red barn, fresh house, laundry in the breeze, little birds in the air. It was beautiful, but it didn't win. The second piece was the Puget Sound in which it was early morning, clearly early because the rose in the sky and the sun coming up was so beautiful and the sound was quiet. Just little ripples on the water and the birds in the air on the wing. It was beautiful, but it didn't win. The third picture was of a waterfall, big one, cascading hundreds of feet. It was a gorgeous waterfall, uh, but there was something odd about it. To the left were the golden arches. Yep, the golden arches. And a trash can. You know, like when you go through the drive-thru, there's always a trash can that's running over. And the trash is spilled on the ground. On the other side of this gorgeous waterfall was a six-lane highway filled with traffic. At the top of the waterfall, there was a campground, a big old party going on. And the beer cans were floating over the side, landing in the pool at the bottom. Over this waterfall was an enormous tree and a limb with a robin sitting on by its nest with little, little blue eggs in it. And that one won. Why? Because peace... Peace cannot be one outside of chaos. Peace has to be found in the midst of it, in the conflict, inside of us by the one who is with us. God's peace is the kind that helps us live into the chaos called life, into the situations that we face, and finding that peace within us carrying it, living with it, running with it through the conflict of our lives because Christ is peace and where it's to be found. That's why we can let the walls go. But understand, eliminating boundaries does not in itself create peace. 
peace comes only by eliminating the hostility that started the walls in the first place. How did Jesus do that? Well, quite simply, Jesus does it by becoming vulnerable, not through his strength. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians that God's weakness is stronger than our human strength. Now, let's just admit, we really appreciate strength and importance. We admire self-sufficiency, the self-made person, by golly, it's the American way. The weakness of God, as Paul calls it, is not something that we often admire or certainly risk imitating. The Roman kind of peace suits us better. We would really like to enforce our peace, brought on by military dominance, and when necessary, used to terrorize, keep people in their place. In fact, that's what a crucifix was for. But what Ephesians claims, after all, is that despite all the swaggering claims of Rome's emperors, their strength and their power, true peace was only inaugurated when a man was willing to be crucified by the empire. Richard Rohr in his book, The Divine Dance, says God's weakness is a form of interbeing. I-N-T-E-R. Interbeing is a different way of standing in the world than the self-made person. Our strength comes from vulnerability in Christ. Openness, expansiveness, willing to be instruments in the hands of God. It's about walking smack dab into the chaos and saying, Lord, what do you think and what do you want for your people? It's God in us that helps us to understand the things of God. In other words, God's the only one that can translate peace for us. Do you remember the saying, it isn't whether you win or lose, but how you play the... That's right, you know that one. It's the dance that matters. It's said of the Talmud that when the rabbis got together with their students, they wouldn't say they had 24,000 students. They would say they had 12,000 pairs. Because it was best to study the scriptures with someone else, with a partner, someone to fight with, someone to debate and to challenge, to disagree and move walls and wrestle and refine the questions. Do you know that in Psalm 127.5, the enemies of the gate, that phrase is used for those who study the Talmud? It says, even a father and a son or a teacher and his student who study the Torah together in one gate become enemies. But they do not move from there until they become devoted friends. 
Nothing profound comes out of staying in our own corners. But in our willingness to wrestle and to struggle, to take it to the mat, not to win or lose, but to play the game in a way that God can tear down the walls and bring meaning and something new. We aren't talking about a purely spiritual reality here. It's not the time on Sunday morning when we take the time out to pretend that peace is possible by sitting next to folks that we try to avoid or by those folks we have no intention of understanding or embracing the rest of the time. We certainly wouldn't ask them to dinner. The church, the church of Christ is the daring practice of a different kind of power that pours out and crosses boundaries and surrenders to a Christ and his cross. We knowingly and willingly trust God's power letting it undermine our walls and build together a spirituality in a dwelling place with God. That's why Paul calls Christ the cornerstone. By breaking down barriers and reconciling persons of all kinds so that none are strangers and aliens, Christ is about to build a new thing. It's difficult for us in this day and age to imagine that a church at one time was not a building. During the time of the scripture, the church was just a community of folks who gathered together to believe in Christ and to reconcile themselves to each other. This odd group of aliens and strangers were becoming citizens and saints in the household of God because Christ was building it among them. People who lived together after hostility was what formed the community in which Christ was abiding. So it's not, it's not a building, it's the space. Can you and I make the space for community, not the building kind, but the God-indwelling kind where Christ is a cornerstone? Read the most fascinating article this week, found in Business Insider. The title is 99.9999999999% of your body is empty. Now, how many of us were taught that our bodies are mostly water? Okay, there was a time, okay. Then they started saying that our bodies are mostly oxygen. This article claims that 99.99999% of our body is empty space. It might humble you to know that all of those things, your friends, your office, your really big car, yourself, and even everything in this incredibly vast universe is almost entirely empty space. Nuclei 
are about 100,000 times smaller than the atoms they are housed in. Now, those of you who understand this stuff can figure this out. If the nucleus was the size of a peanut, then the atom would be the size of a baseball stadium. If we lost all of the dead space inside our atoms, we would fit each of us into a particle of dust. The entire human species would fit into the volume of a sugar cube. Why on earth would God take up so much space with this? Because Christ would have us understand that the spaciousness within us is meant to be in dwelling place of God. It's meant to be vulnerable and open and a place where even in the chaos and the creativity of time that God is in it and with us. This community of grace, this community of peace in which Christ abides is big enough, expansive enough to deal with anything that the world will throw at it, I promise. Because peace is about a person. It's about how together we work with Christ to build community. All of that space in you and me is meant for him and for the call and claim of God upon our lives. And there isn't anything that could stop us. It's no small thing to say, may the peace of Christ be with you. It's everything. It's bigger than you can imagine. It's enough. It's wonder. It is the power in vulnerability to heal the world. Amen.